You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's now 22 minutes to 3 o'clock. Always a pleasure to wrap up our Monday show by speaking to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, and he joins us every Monday. This is where we take your science-related questions, so give us a call now on 011-883-0702. Chris, always a pleasure to be with you. Hi. Well, I was thinking precisely the same thing. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, where shall we start? I know that last week you had a spot of homework <laughs> that you kind of took on. Uh, don't remind <laughs> me. Yeah, no, it was interesting, this, because I hadn't come across the story because it, it hadn't affected me directly, but it concerned apple juice. Yeah. And the announcement was that one particular brand of apple juice had been withdrawn because of concerns over this chemical called patulin, which mm. was in the apple juice. Now, uh, I said I wanted to read a bit more around the story before I commented, which is appropriate because I didn't know anything about the story. This actually is, um, this patulin chemical is something that you'd naturally find in fruits and certain other sort of foodstuffs anyway. Mm. It is made by mould. So when a fungus, a particular kind of fungus, penicillium mould that makes penicillin actually, but also aspergillus and other relatives of those moulds, when they grow on rotting foods, they can secrete a range of chemicals into the food and one of the things they make is this substance called patulin. It is toxic, but in the same way that massive amounts of anything are toxic. So in tiny amounts, it's harmless or judged to be harmless, but in bigger amounts, it may not be. So it's sort of used as a barometer of freshness because if food has been properly preserved and harvested at the right time and handled correctly, this would be at at low level because it would argue there hadn't been much degradation, there hadn't been much fungal growth. On the other hand, if the levels are high, while they could also have a negative impact on health, they also point to the fact that the food has perhaps not been very well looked after. Mm -hmm. So it's a useful index of what else might be going wrong. And in this instance, because of the the fact that these fungi do grow on things like fruits used in fruit juices, they are tested internally by manufacturers to make sure that levels are within a certain prescribed safe range. Mm. When it departs outside that range, it triggers a warning. And in this case, uh, it was decided that they should withdraw a particular batch so that there was no threat to people. But as I say, this stuff is is regarded as a a low-level toxin, the worst you can expect if you did ingest some of it, certainly at the level that you'd find in these fruit juices, would be perhaps a bit of tummy upset and and that kind of thing. So pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. It's not like the kinds of toxins that toadstools produce that can wipe out your kidneys or your liver. Toadstools, you said? Well, it's not like that, but um, we do get very nervous about fungi Mm -hmm. because they do have an incredible metabolic ability. Mm. The fungi can make a whole raft of things which range from the downright dangerous through to the downright delicious because if you think about it, if you're fond fond of blue cheeses, Mm -hmm. uh, those cheeses are blue because they have fungi and moulds growing in them which secrete into them not just those coloured pigments but also a whole raft of molecules that make the food, the cheese, taste absolutely amazing. Mm. And so some of the chemicals they make are are very nice for flavour but other fungi of other types do make nasty things which is why it's important that we we do 
watch out for this kind of thing. But in this instance, uh, this is what's regarded as a low-risk toxin. Okay. Uh, well, since then, actually, the National Consumer Commission uh, announced that it's pursuing the manufacturer for for supplying, allegedly supplying goods that are unsafe, they say, uh, or pose a potential risk to the public. So there's been further developments, but it's good to know what this actually is, this petulant, what actually it is. Thank you, Chris. Um, let's go to the lines now. We've got Christine, who's called from St. Churian with a question around the vaccine. Hi, Christine. Hello. Hi. What was, sorry, what was the Pfizer vaccine made from? And if a protein was used, which protein, please? Okay. Chris? Hello, Christine. The answer is that Pfizer's vaccine is a whole new generation of vaccines. It's brand new technology, but actually technology that scientists have been working on for a long time, but never used in humans before. The way it works is that they take the genetic code that the coronavirus would use when it's in your body to make a part of itself in your cells. And having stolen that bit of the coronavirus, they package up these short pieces of genetic code in an oily bag and they inject billions of these tiny oily particles into your muscles and the oily particles fuse with your cells in your muscles and they deliver the genetic code that they wrap up mm-hmm. into the cell. It's a bit like two soap bubbles. When they come together, they can merge to make a bigger bubble. Well, these tiny oily bubbles merge into the walls of your muscles and deliver the piece of genetic code. The cells read that genetic code and turn it into the bit of coronavirus that the virus would make were it in you for real. And Mm -hmm. the cells then present that to the immune system and the immune system learns to recognise this is what that part of the coronavirus looks like. And what the researchers at Pfizer and BioNTech, the company that came up with the technology, have done is to choose a piece of the coronavirus to educate the immune system to recognise, which is the linchpin for the virus to be able to infect you. And in this case, it's a structure called the spike protein. These coronaviruses are called coronaviruses because they look like a crown. And that crown is spiky. And these things that stick out from the surface, the spikes, are what dock with your cells and pull the virus very close to your cells so it can infect you. And so by by presenting those structures to the immune system, it doesn't make you unwell because there's none of the rest of the virus there but it does teach you to recognise that crucial part of the virus so that you make antibodies, which are molecules, which are sticky, which are present in the bloodstream. So if you encounter the virus, it sticks itself. These antibodies coat the outside of the virus and immobilise it. They're called neutralising antibodies, and they basically get in the way and stop the virus being able to dock with your cells because all the things it would be using to dock with your cells, the spikes, are covered in these antibodies which stop them working. Mm. It also persuades white blood cells called CD8 cytotoxic T cells to recognise what a virus-infected cell would look like so that in the unlikely event that virus does still get into your cells, those white blood cells can come along, recognise infected cells and destroy them before they have a chance to spread the virus elsewhere in your body. Right, so that's the protein, the spike protein. Christine, there's your answer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the call. That's Christine in Centurion. Paul, you're in Joburg. Hello. Hi, how are you? Very Hi, good. Chris. You've got a question today. Hi. Chris, I have a question in terms of weight business. How would it impact a person that is a paraplegic if they went into space? 
weightlessness. And be in a weightlessness, weightlessness um, environment. Would it be beneficial? Oh, like they can move around. Hi. When a person is paraplegic, they have had some kind of injury to their nervous system, which is blocking the passage of information that would normally control muscles from the brain to where the muscle cells are in the spinal, the, the muscle controlling cells are in the spinal cord. So the interruption of those messages means that the person can't voluntarily move their muscles, or at least not very well. In many cases, people have a bit of residual movement, but not enough to be weight-bearing. So if you ask them to stand up, they may struggle because they're not able to activate their muscles well enough to do that, but they can get a bit of movement. A good friend of mine had an accident, and she has paralysis of her upper arms and below. But she can still move some of her muscle groups okay. And, and when she's doing exercises and physio, she's trying to build up those movements, but they're not enough to support her weight. But if she were in a weightless environment, and this includes, for instance, hydrotherapy, when you put people into, a, into water so they can float in water comfortably, because you're taking the weight bearing off of the muscles, then it takes a lot less force to move a joint around. And so a person can often, with just a small amount of movement they are capable of normally, mm. they can actually make much bigger movements and more natural movements when they're in that environment. And this is very important for keeping joints mobile and also helping people to build strength in a way that is meaningful for them. So if they did end up in, in weightless environments, then they would find that they could probably move more freely and a bit better than they could under the influence of, of gravity down at the Earth's surface. But certainly that they would still have the underlying health problem and injury that caused them to be disabled in the first place. That wouldn't go away. So there would still be limitation, but they might find that they were slightly less limited without having to do the weight-bearing element that gravity imposes on us. Hmm. There you go, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Hello. Thanks. I just wanted to say thank you very much for the answer. It's actually terrified my mind completely. It's actually terrified your mind? Yeah, I know. Terrified what I was Oh, clarified. Thinking. Good. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Thanks, Paul. Girl. Cool. Uh, next, we go to Brian in Midrand. Hi, Brian. You also uh, want to know something about the vaccines? Yes. Hi, Azania. How's it, Chris? Uh, I just wanted to find out something. At the beginning of the um, vaccination uh, phase, um, we heard a lot of talk about uh, herd immunity, right, where you only had to vaccinate about 60 or 70 percent of the population mm. and everything would be hunky-dory. Now, my question is that the narrative seems to have changed, right? Uh, it seems as if everybody now needs to be vaccinated at this point. Uh, what possibly could have changed from herd immunity to now having to get everybody vaccinated? Mm. Which messaging, Hello, to be Brian. precise, Brian? Sorry? Uh, which Please. messaging particularly do you, can you maybe... Elaborate that. Uh, so I was talking with regards to the herd immunity. Yes. Uh, there was a talk where, you, where there was um, the conversation around herd immunity was that uh, only like 60 percent or three, two thirds mm. of the population. Mm. No, I'm saying which be, messaging yeah. is it from our health department? From who? Which messaging no, is no, now saying general, all? Just, just general, general. around okay. the pandemic. Yeah, just general okay. around the pandemic. Yeah. All right, so that's fine. Just needed to get yeah. clarity. Hello, hello Brian. Mm. This is um, the case in many countries. You're absolutely right that initially when we embarked on this course of uh, managing coronavirus, we all said we'll try to get to a stage of herd immunity, a bit like we do for measles, and at that point the disease will cease to circulate and we'll achieve that by vaccination, hopefully. Now, that has changed, and the reason it's changed is because 
although we were hopeful that vaccines would prevent infection full stop, we were sceptical that that would be the case for various reasons. And indeed, that has turned out to be the case, that vaccines, while they can prevent severe disease, and they do it incredibly well, 95% effective at stopping you ending up in hospital, what they can't do is to protect you against infection to the same extent. So when you're first vaccinated and you have really high levels of antibody, they can stop infection very, very effectively. But after about six months, they're only stopping infection maybe half to two-thirds of the time. That means a person who's been vaccinated can still catch about half the time and can still potentially transmit about half the time the infection. And that means that you can't get to a stage where herd immunity will actually stop people passing on the infection because you'd have to have everyone continuously being vaccinated and it's just not practical. So really the message is now one of we are aiming to reduce the risks of severe disease through vaccination, but we have to accept that there will be some level of circulation of the infection despite vaccination to a very high level in the population because we accept that the vaccines that we have at the moment can't stop the transmission of the infection because people are catching it asymptomatically or with very few symptoms because they've been vaccinated. In the future, this may change, though, because what people are doing is actively pursuing even better vaccines that may produce even higher levels of antibody or a more comprehensive range of antibodies which are capable of blocking a range of variants of the virus rather than just one. Mm. And that would mean perhaps that the, the length of protection conferred by the vaccines would be greater and the extent of protection would be greater. And that would mean that herd immunity would again become a potential reality that we could strive for. But at the moment, with the vaccines we have and the level of vaccination we're achieving, we accept that it's going to be a case of mitigation rather than prevention. Right. Chris, we've got to take a break. Let's do that and come back to more questions. My guest is Dr. Chris Smith. A naked, the Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist. Right, so let's power through the remaining questions with Dr. Chris Smith. Uh, Omulemo, good afternoon. You're in St. Churian. Hi. Hello. Hi, Omulemo. How old are you? I'm 10 years old. Oh, and you have a question for the Naked Scientist this afternoon. What would you like to know? I, I want to ask the Naked Scientist, is plasma state of matter? Because I asked my mom for some information from when they were getting taught. Mm. And she said that in school, they were only taught three states of matter. And so you want to know about plasma? Yeah, plasma. And, and its state of matter? Yeah, is it a state of matter? Okay. And my, mom, my mom said that the only state of matter they were taught are solids, mm. liquids, and gases. Mm-hmm. So, so I got this question because um, I was just thinking about it. And then I Googled it, and after that, I Googled state, the state of matter. Okay. Let's hear what the naked scientist says to your question, uh, Omulemo. Chris? Well, the answer to this one is that, yes, plasma is often called the fourth state of matter. Mm. So we talk about matter being a solid, something like ice or stone, a liquid, something like water, or a gas, something like steam, or the stuff that comes out of your cooker and you light it. You can also turn matter into a plasma, and that's the fourth state of matter. So I think you'd be quite right to say there is a fourth state of matter. What is it? Well, when lightning forms and you have a lightning bolt coming down through the air, that's made a plasma. 
what's happening is when you add enormous amounts of energy to anything, mm. you can cause it to do what's called ionize. You can rip the electrons away from the atoms and you end up with this soup of charged particles. This is a plasma and it's highly conductive. And that's why lightning travels down a plasma through the air to reach the ground. And also you, you can do this if you superheat something in your microwave, for example. You can, you can create a plasma and, and you get little fireballs going off if you put things like Brillo pads and um, scourer pads that you shouldn't put in your microwave in your microwave oven, which we did do at um, the Science Festival in Grahamstown mm-hmm. a few years ago. Oh, great question. Umulimo, I learned something today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The fourth state. Um, let's go to Juan in Wendywood. Hello, Juan. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Very good. What question do you have today? Yeah, uh, the, my question is, what is the likely in impact of inhaling carbolinium uh, on the health of a person? Oh. Uh, basically, uh, I think by mistake, I painted the wooden floor of a windy house, a wood house, mm. and um, uh, and the, 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 stench, the, the scent of it is pretty strong. So I want to find out if uh, um, I've been advised to put a, like a, a, a cement screening on it, maybe to kill the scent. But I just wanted to find out if staying, um, staying in that wood yeah. house um, quite often for a long time yeah. would have any negative impact on the health or respiratory system. Carbolinium. Thank you for that, yeah. Sean. Chris? Thank you. Well, I, I, I don't know what that is. Um, all I can say is that if it's strong enough to smell it and it goes on for a really long time, at the very least, it's going to get on your nerves. And, <laughs> and there's certainly evidence that some chemicals, if you're exposed to them continuously for a long period of time, they can be bad for health. And there is something called sick building syndrome. And there are increasing numbers of reports and people move into newly refurbished or newly built apartments or yeah. buildings, or they put new carpets in, put new furniture in. These things all contain various so-called volatile chemicals that are in, in within the materials when they are manufactured, and they leach out into the air. And some people are quite sensitive to them, and they, they can cause people to have intensification of allergy and so on. But I, I don't know what's being referred to mm-hmm. in, in this instance. So I would say... Um, if you do have to use any kind of treatment or you sand down materials and that kind of thing, always do it either wearing a face covering so that you don't have to breathe in the dust because the dust can be bad if it gets where it shouldn't go, but also try and do it in well-ventilated space. And if you have to do it indoors, do open all the doors and windows as well to keep an airflow because then you minimise your exposure and also keep those doors and windows open while the material you're painting onto it goes off and dries because Mm -hmm. then all the volatile chemicals are the smelly ones which are often the solvents and things, they will evaporate and then you don't breathe them in. The planet sort of disperses them for you. Okay. I think our public service announcement work is done now. (laughs) That was very useful, Chris. Thank you. Jolly good. Uh, That's the Naked Scientist. We're with him again next week.